Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return. I'm Anna, and in this episode, we're talking wine and property. So I've got Jack Chapman, who is the Senior Portfolio Manager at Cult Wine Investments, on to discuss the topic with me, because he's a bit of an expert on wine investment. Hi, Jack. Hi, everyone. So I thought it'd be good to discuss property and wine and compare the two because basically the property market has changed a lot recently. And a lot of people who were thinking about getting into property, maybe buying their first place or their first buy to let, are a bit nervous because of all the uncertainty. And it doesn't mean they don't want to invest, but maybe they're putting it on pause for the time being. And so what else are they investing in? One alternative is wine. And it might also be seen as kind of a diversifier if you are a bit nervous. So a temporary strategy or a diversifier um, while the property market is a bit confused. So, and I think the other thing is if you're just getting started, it makes sense to do it in a way that doesn't break the bank if it goes wrong um, and it's something that you're passionate about. And I think a lot of young people especially are quite passionate about wine. What do you think? Yeah, you said a lot there. <laughs> Where do we start with that? Yeah. I think fine wine as an investment category is really interesting because everyone probably knows an uncle family friends, you know, someone who's invested in fine wine and they made money out of it. You know, it's not something that's too obscure, is it, to yeah. to people generally, but also everyone sort of you know that uncle's usually a bit of a wine nerd. Yeah. Know? Well that that relative is uh, you know, very into that category. So it's kind of finding a way to make your money without having to go and study for, you know, the WSET exams or, you know, yeah, really, well, really what that is. So it's the Wine Spirit Education Trust. Which is your exam where you get to booze through it. Exactly. (laughs) Professional drinkers exam. Okay. So yeah, it's kind of trying to enter the market. And like you said, it's it's fun. It's interesting. It's a relatively low capital investment. So it's quite accessible to everyone. But yeah, should should we just sort of go through the ways in which you can... Yeah, that's exactly it. So it would be good to understand. There's loads of different approaches in property, which we can go into in a bit. But what about the different ways you can invest in, in wine? So I'd say there are probably three major ways. And we'll, we'll run through them very quickly because two, I think we can discount fairly, fairly rapidly. Uh, the first is buying a vineyard. And kudos to you if you've got three, you know, 10 million, 30 million, <laughs> whatever you need locked up in the bank to, to go go to France, buy a lovely vineyard. And, um, and the reality is even if you're able to do that, you'll probably very much struggle to make money. There is an old saying in the wine industry, the only way to make a small fortune from owning a vineyard is to start by losing a large one. So... Maybe, you know, if, if you're a young investor looking to, to get into fine wine investment, don't go down that route. The second one is is fund-based wine investment. I mean, most people know vaguely how funds function, but this is really just a way of putting capital into uh, into a large pot, which people then use to buy fine wine and trade, you know, trade in and out of it completely autonomously, I suppose. Is that the win? If the fund collapses, you'll lose all your money. If it does well, it'll obviously make some. Uh, and it completely defers all responsibility to another person. So you've got no you've got no need to engage with the product at all, which has some upsides. But I think part of buying wine as an investment is that it's you know it's exciting, it's something that you can learn as you go along the way and and you can actually talk about it at the pub, which most people they turn off pretty quickly if we start talking about diversified equities portfolios. Yeah. So I mean funds are interesting, but actually 
fundamentally have never outperformed the fine wine market. So there was only ever one fund that did so. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it because the lawyers might be listening. But I believe that they were caught for insider trading and grabbing stock off the back of lorries and all sorts of slightly iffy stuff, you know, dealing with fakes. So there are funds out there. Um, They do make returns, but nothing particularly spectacular. And the third way, uh, the most fun, and I think easily the most profitable way, is just investing in fine wine yourself. So buying cases of wine to lay down, to leave over a certain period of time. Obviously, comes with its own pitfalls. And there are two ways, really, that you can approach it. You can either, as you would with any investment, read a great deal, you know, read around the topic, speak to merchants, speak to professionals, and try and go out on your own, approach merchants, buy certain cases of wine, and hold them for a period, hoping they'll make money. Or there are certain companies which will sort of like a fund, but more like an asset management wing, take a sum of capital from you, put it into cases of wine under your name, and then you can actively manage it along with someone to appreciate the value, Okay, which is sort of what I do. So I'm going to earn more on that side inevitably. But yeah, those are the two sort of most interesting ways of approaching it. I think, you know, the, the second way really, it gives you that level of autonomy and engagement with the product, mm-hmm. which is great you know allows you to learn but also you've got a professional next to you the whole time guiding you through buying in selling out all that sort of stuff you know moving positions around so i'd say those are the three fundamental ways that we can invest in fine wine and i think that's quite similar to the way property is split so you can do stuff yourself you can buy stuff and hold it for a long time and take the rental income or you can buy stuff and flip it um, and in terms of the ways it's kind of similar because you can buy from you know an estate agent which i guess would be the equivalent of your merchant and you can buy from an auction or you can invest in directly via a fund or indirectly in a specific asset via a crowdfunding platform yeah exactly it's not it's not anything actually that's really news it's just doing the same thing with a completely different, different product yeah and i think you described wine we were talking about alternative investments the other day and you said you know wine is really the alternative of all alternatives so i guess it's just that one step more alternative <laughs> from property. yeah yeah really it does take another step i mean in terms of it as an alternative asset i mean we re- really recommend that people don't put more than 20 percent of the overall capital into fine wine as an investment mm-hmm. like you said it is a diversification option yeah if it makes up 100 percent of your investment portfolio then yeah fair enough it pretty much does with mine <laughs> yeah but it's not it's not something we'd say pull your money out of equities and property and, and put it into fine yeah wine. It's, it's um it's a really good hedge Well, and I think that's really relevant. And we'll go go into a bit more about the hows and whys and so on. But I think there's a really important point about having that balance in your portfolio in a way that is kind of easily accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just to go into the accessibility of fine wine a bit more, and I suppose the dynamics of of Mm. how the investment functions, it's not quite as simple as nipping down the local Tesco's and buying a bottle, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) you think it looks all right and keeping it, keeping it in your house until it makes money. All formalized wine investment is done by the in-bond system, which some people may be familiar with, some may not. So in essence, when you buy from your merchant, you buy without tax. So you buy the wine without paying duty or VAT and it's kept specifically in a bonded warehouse and stored, you know, indefinitely until you look to liquidate it or or indeed drink it, if that's what takes your fancy. Mm -hmm. And that really is the only way to sort of professionally invest in fine wine. If you were to take it out of bond, you've obviously paid VAT. So you've lost 20% of your investment already. And then if you were to sell it onward, even if you kept it, you know, very well at home in a cellar, you would still either have to put it to a broker who would charge you a certain percent and then put VAT on top 
or put it through an auction house and, and then you know you just don't know what the returns are going to be so you kind of basically wouldn't take it out unless you were going to drink it yourself yeah exactly so if you're investing in it it just stays in a temperature controlled warehouse you can't put your hands on it no one else can mm. there's no temptation when you wander in drunk at, at midnight to open a bottle of your investment grade wine which is always a bonus mm-hmm. um yeah and it's it's the only way to really make proper money I think that makes it sort of brings out a point that is relevant in property, which is I think a lot of people look at the property market and they think about themselves um, and they think about the use value, especially for their first property. And they'll only buy something that they would want to live in. But actually, if you're looking at it purely as an investment, you'd just be looking at the numbers. So when I invest in property, I'm only looking at the numbers. I'm not thinking about, am I ever going to use that? Am I ever going to live there? And I think it's the same thing with wine is that even if you know a lot about using it yourself, which I think we both do, um, it doesn't mean that... Using is a very interesting time to refer to. Yeah. How you're taking your wine. It's the same thing, right? There's two very different ways of assessing it. One is for use and one is for investment. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, I actually started my fine wine investment portfolio years ago when I was working for Majestic. And I had a little bit of an idea of what I was doing. You know, I'd, I'd obviously I'd taken some exams and things. So I knew about the wines I was buying, but I wasn't examining the greater market as a whole. And I was really putting my money into stuff that I liked, that I thought mm. had some scope for investment. And yeah. and yeah, if it doesn't or it didn't, and some of it hasn't, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you can always drink it, which is... You know, it's it's a real sort of last resort for fine wine investment and something we, you know, never try to do nor recommend. But I suppose it does have that kind of casual bonus if the economy does completely tank yeah. and, and for whatever reason the category gets completely deflated, you've still got some really nice wine to drink. So I want to ask you about that, actually, because so property is obviously really quite cyclical and, you know, a lot of pricing is very focused on confidence. Of course, there's an underlying use value. So people will always need to live in houses. So there is a fundamental value and that stands the test of time. But actually, there's a whole huge part of it, especially in more expensive markets like London, which is really related to confidence and demand cycles. Uh, what about wine? It seems to be on a big upward trend and it doesn't, I mean, from the outside, what do you think about the slight cyclical nature of it? Or- yeah, to a certain extent, you know, at the very top end, you will get wines, the Pam, Petrus, some of the top burgundies that are, are just traded by speculators. Mm. So they're moved around and, you know, who's actually drinking wine that's worth £15,000 a bottle? I don't know if you find out, invite me to one of the parties. <laughs> um, but for the most part, actually, you know, wine has an amazing, it's what we call like an elastic curve. So as it gets older, it gets better and it gets scarcer. So inevitably, some people that buy these cases of fine wine are buying them to drink and there's a finite production level. So if 500 are produced, then 250 are drunk, it stands to reason that as those age and become, you know, they become better, they're going to increase in value. It's pretty much that simple. So obviously it's, you know, in a more global sort of uh, setting, it does make a difference how the market's playing out, you know, popularity of certain regions and and how global currency and duty and things like that affects sort of short-term trends. But really, you know, we we recommend fine wine for a five-year hold at least. So it is a long-term investment and that's what you're looking at. And, And should you have the patience to see that through? There are no guarantees in investment, but really it's an incredibly safe low volatility asset and you kind of say that because the wider trend across the kind of global market is upward it you see that as kind of outweighing any cyclical kind of economically influenced nerves completely i mean we obviously get loads of questions about brexit from don't we all (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
how's Brexit going to be? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, sir, I do not know. Um, but uh, I mean, Brexit's really interesting because it's a big concern. All our wine is kept in the UK, and obviously, we purchase predominantly, although we hedge our currency in um, in sterling. So it is a big question, but. The wine market globally is enormous and the UK accounts for a fair amount, but but not enough to have a dangerous short-term impact. So I think in that respect, it's still an incredibly safe place to put your money. And and really, actually, all of the research that we've done recently uh, shows it's got basically no or, or very little correlation to the wider capital market. So, okay, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly defensive. You know, the statistics in 2008, when the entire economy, you know, sadly went down the pan, I think gold dropped about 7%. Fine wine didn't even drop 1%. So in, in terms really of its, yeah, strength as a defensive asset and, you know, like we said, a hedge um, as part of your portfolio. It's a great store of value. We work with a few larger banks in the sort of high net worth management wing, I suppose. And a lot of the clients come to us not saying, how much money can I make right now? They're all saying, how how can I preserve the capital I have? Yeah. Everyone knows that with Trump and his trade wars, Brexit and everything that's going on globally, it's, it's a slightly unnerving time to have any investments. People are really just looking to preserve the money that they currently have rather than really increase it. And what's interesting, I think that's a a big similarity with kind of more stable income producing property assets, the stuff that hasn't really changed value or that it doesn't matter if it changes value because you're getting an income anyway. But I suppose that would be the big difference between property and wine is that, you know, your wine isn't actually going to deliver you an income. It's just a capital gain or a store of wealth. It has that same thing where, you know, over over time, provided you didn't start at an overinflated price that was kind of wildly off what the fundamental forces of demand and supply were in that area you know you should be able to store your your wealth and fundamentally it should hold its value yeah um, absolutely and i suppose that's one of the the few downsides of investing in fine wine is that while it's sat there it doesn't make you any money in fact it costs you money to store it Mm. Uh, i'd love to say we were able to rent out the cases to people looking to furnish their homes with them or something but (laughs) the sad reality is it, it will just you know it will just sit there but yeah, like you said, it's it's a very stable, safe hedge to, to put some money into. Okay. So although wine is pretty approachable from the use um, value, like we discussed before, a lot of people don't really know how to get started with investing. You've given some ways. Talk me through, if I said, came to you uh, as a potential client and said, like, where should I start? How would you go about that? What would you recommend I do? Um, so we look to get people in at a minimum of £10,000 cult it's really just to get internal diversification within a portfolio and so it's not to be prohibitive you can just go and buy a case of wine should you wish to for mm. 500 or a thousand pounds obviously do your research beforehand speak to the merchant you know, get some advice before you buy it but you can make money on very small investments so, so and you said to me before kind of a couple of hundred pounds right yeah i mean it's realistically you're probably looking baseline at maybe 250 300 yeah. for a case of wine that will sort of steadily make you a bit of money so yeah. it's a very accessible category but if you're going to do it seriously then i think ten thousand pounds yeah, is yeah the place to start and the main reason for that is that every different region within fine wine functions quite differently um so Bordeaux, which most people have heard of as a wine region, mm-hmm. is very much the traditional sort of bastion of fine wine investment. Your, you know, your uncle, your elderly relative who invests in fine wine will probably have cases of Lafitte or Mousson Rothschild or Oprion or you know big names that, that a lot of people have heard of. Um, and it still makes up the widest part of the market today. And we put about fifty percent of our portfolios 
into Bordeaux. It's very reliable. It has a futures market, so on-premier, in which you can buy, you buy cases of wine, but they're not yet bottled. So it's buying in the barrel. So it's like buying off plan in the property world. Yeah, exactly. So it's something that has a lot of market data, a lot of market trades, very high liquidity. It's, it's very stable. I'm not going to say it's boring, <laughs> um, but you know the volatility is low and, and it's consistent, right? Very not consistent. boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I mean. And then the rest of the portfolio, you know, the other fifty percent, we we looked to divide by about twenty percent into Burgundy, which has actually been by far the most exciting um, appreciation in the last two years, and it's gone up at just under twenty four percent in in the last year as a category. So you know, it's it's very very rapid appreciation, mm-hmm. but it's the most scarce <laughs> of all fine wine. It's all from very tiny delineated vineyards in specific areas. So they can only make so much per year, say 500 cases. So getting hold of it, it's very difficult. You've got to really be, you know, so I think, <laughs> you've got to be quick. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, know the right people, right? Very much, and yeah. Have, have a good relationship with whatever merchant you're using. I think that location um, point is another key. I mean, they say this, the most, three most important factors in property investment are location, location, location. It seems very similar to wine yeah. in, in that instance. Absolutely, yeah. You got to buy your burgundy from the right location. But yeah, it's it's got a very high entry point as well. You know, by the nature of its production, because it's so scarce, the the cases are usually very expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can easily spend ten thousand pounds on a bottle of wine. Um, like one you don't want to bring to a party. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, unless you've got very good friends. But yeah, uh, you'll probably be buying in at two thousand pounds a case, three thousand pounds a case. So the entry point is. Is a lot higher, even though the gains are very good. Liquidity is lower. If you think when you're selling it out the other end, there are only so many people who want a ten thousand pound case of wine. So that's that's a consideration. Um, so it's something we we sort of diversify part of the portfolio. Sure. Okay. And then really the the rest is put into champagne, which is a fascinating sort of relatively new side of uh, the investment market. It's growing very rapidly. Why is why is it growing so much? And um, why why do you see it as kind of new? Uh, yeah, I've been drinking for years, Jack. <laughs> investing in it personally. This is the weird thing. I mean, obviously, everyone's aware of champagne. I think yeah. of all the things I mentioned, it's by far the most prominent. It has a really great following of people that are willing to spend a lot of money per bottle. Mm. So it's got it's got the money behind it. It's got the marketing behind it. But it's always been a very consumption-led market. No one really right. buys champagne to lay down. Um, you get it for an occasion, you know, it doesn't hang around for that long. Whereas we're finding actually a lot more people are becoming turned on to it through grower champagne. Uh, and this is getting into a little bit of, you know, a little bit of depth about. So when you say grower champagne, what does so that mean? If you go down the local supermarket and you buy a bottle of Mert or Verve Clicquot or something, mm. those are called the Grand Marks. Um, so the big champagne houses that actually don't really own many vineyards. They buy their grapes from these growers and then they make their champagne. They label it. They have colossal marketing budgets, all that kind of stuff. Right. And they make very good champagne. But on the flip side, there are literal farmers who grow the grapes. They make the wine, they bottle it, they sell it. So it's all done from the ground up. And I think the way generally the food market and things are going, people are very provenance focused. They love to know that Fred made the cheese with his own hands from his cows that he's been rearing for five generations. And, and yeah, that kind of it stuff. becomes more about the story. Than- yeah, exactly. So people are really turned on to that as an idea. At the same time, I think, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic in terms of Burgundy. It's, it's very terroir focused wine so it comes from a very specific place and everything every vineyard is classified down to you know the half acres absolutely mad the detail they've gone into and champagne is exactly the same 
and you only really get that site-specific flavour, I suppose, at the grower level because mm-hmm. they are making champagne from that one small vineyard and then bottling it and selling it. Um, so much so that actually one of the most prominent critics uh, in a report came out recently and said that champagne is the new Burgundy. You know, Burgundy is prohibitively expensive. Viticulturally, champagne is very similar. It's got people who are willing to spend a lot of money on it. So you can kind of see it's grown uh, in terms of its its share, investment market share. It's grown 6% in the last year. So how much? Six percent. Six percent. Yeah, it was sort of one point nine. Now it's you know six percent up. So it's really it's quite rapidly going going in the right direction, and and it's it's the most low volatility actually of all the areas in fine wine investment. And it's it's more of a long term hold. So if you think about the consumption led market again, people are drinking their champagne fairly quickly. You know, over five to ten years tops. As soon as they've drunk all those cases, if you're the one left you know, with one case of Tata de yeah. Champagne 1996, all of a sudden it becomes very desirable, mm-hmm. very valuable. So it's really good as, as a very stable long-term hold part, mm-hmm. part of your um, fine wine portfolio. Uh, and the other 10% really goes into the rest of the world. Interesting, California actually is a huge growth market, so much so that Libex, um, which we maybe should have touched on earlier, the, the London International Vintners Exchange, um, has just created a new indice solely for tracking Californian wine. Uh, and they haven't done that for years. You know, they haven't haven't created a new index. That's fairly indicative of of how strong the market is. That's really interesting. Yeah, in that direction. Okay, so you, so basically, um, you would recommend that someone get started with, like, if they were working with you, a portfolio of a m- minimum of ten thousand, and it would go into stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, I mean, should we touch briefly on Libex as well? Yeah, I think it's a yeah. really interesting um, sort of facet of the fine mining investment industry. Everyone's aware of passion assets. I think, you know, your classic cars, jewellery, mm-hmm. art, stamps and wine. Everyone, again, hears of people investing in them and making these colossal sums of money. And, and they're fun. You know, they get published in papers because everyone loves to hear about that car that was worth 10 quid and now all of a sudden the guy sold it for a million pounds because of some kind of trend. Um, those are all great things to invest in and, uh, and you know, they're, they're very interesting, but they all lack an index, sort of proper formalized index, whereas fine wine is the only one that has an indices in which all of the members of LiveX, so all the merchant members, whenever they trade a case of wine, it's tracked on their index. So it's used to get a very good idea of the market value of uh so you can do all your research on the data from that yeah exactly it's, it's a very data-driven market so yes it is yeah, sort of informal it's not regulated but it's very very closely tracked and monitored so it gives it a bit, yeah a bit of an edge over over the other passion assets and i think that's another similarity with property i suppose in that tools and technological capabilities led on around data basically led on from you know come everything from Zoopla to all these property data companies actually use that using that data has has really come up since the technological capability has come around and that's kind of opened up accessibility in the market because everyone can log on to Zoopla and be like mm, what's the house worth that's opposite me or yeah, whatever exactly. and, and you love looking at and it's them. amazing it's very yeah. addictive it's, to be like oh what's my neighbor's house well, yeah exactly exactly yeah i think obviously technology has made everything so much more transparent hasn't it mm. and unfortunately wine is one of those areas in which technology is is keeping up with the investment so one of the similarities i think between wine and property is and probably the reason that we both like our specific asset so much is because it's tangible and you can you know see touch drink 
whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would never recommend a trip to a bonded warehouse. It's pretty boring. <laughs> um, but um, in a huge bonus of, of investing outside of the fund structure is that you physically own the cases of wine. Mm-hmm. So should, you know, ourselves or any other sort of wine portfolio management company go off the face of the planet, you own that wine. It's stored with a third party. So it makes it, you know, very safe. In fact, yeah. That you've got your money in something that physically doesn't. Exist. And you can transfer it to someone else. Yeah, should you know, should you have a divorce or 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 actually for tax reasons or something, you want to move it under the name of your cap, then you can uh, you can do so very easily. Yeah. And how has wine actually performed over the last couple of years? We've talked a bit about the performance in the property market and what's anticipated. Yeah, I mean, we talk about fine wine being interesting and fun, but actually, there's um, some very tangible gains to be made out of it. It's it's not just something you invest in. You know, to think, oh, maybe I can drink it, but it doesn't make any money. We're, um, we've actually managed to annualise just over 14% per annum um, since opening 11 years ago. So, yeah, really, I think really strong. And uh, if you compare it to the wider markets, since LiveX, this, this indices has been running, which is in 2004 and, and really recording market data, uh, Fine Wine has, has actually outperformed the S&P 500, Gold, FTSE 100 and the Hang Seng, obviously with far lower rates of volatility. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Is there anything else that we should know about wine investing? I think that it's capital gains tax-free is probably a big thing that we haven't touched on. That sounds huge, yeah. It's pretty huge, yeah. It's very remiss of me to not (laughs) Um, If anyone's sort of hung around in the podcast now (laughs) and they've listened towards this point, then that's probably going to come as a bit of a revelation. But yeah, no capital gains tax. So there are some storage costs associated, you know, much like you get your stamp duty and things of buying property, there there are overheads, but at least you get to keep every penny that you make a profit. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's as you're buying in bond and selling in bond, it's it's pretty much tax free. So it's a really nice way of keeping your money out of the government's hands. Awesome. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, I'm I'm pretty (laughs) sure you can. No, that's great. Well, um, hopefully we won't close that then. Um, That's great. So from a personal perspective, I've been thinking about investing in wine for a while as a diversifier and regardless of the market. And I think the market has kind of changed my view. And hearing you talk about it, it definitely sounds like it's not something to put all your eggs into. And I certainly wouldn't do that anyway, because I'm still very keen on property. But as a nice diversifier to a kind of portfolio that includes other, for me, it's mainly property, um, probably as overweight in property as you are in wine, but includes other assets. It sounds like it's a really good addition and balancer in this kind of un- otherwise uncertain market context. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exciting. It's new and, and you get to learn something along the way, you know, get more acquainted with, mm. uh, with drinks, which is always fun. Cool. Well, um, before we tie up, how can people reach you if they want to find out more about what you do and potentially think about investing? Uh, well, please just go to wineinvestment.com. It's that straightforward. Uh, that's the Cult Wines website. And um, you'll be able to find a, a relatively cheesy portfolio or description written about myself on there, detailing my, my life experience in fine wine and, and an email and a phone number. So if, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch, please do. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, we'll tie up there. So if you have any questions or comments for Jack, then you can contact him directly, as he said. Or for me, it's The Return Podcast on Facebook, thereturnpodcast.com on the internet, the.return.podcast on Instagram. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever it's called now um, because they love reviews. Thank you for joining Jack. Thanks. And thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.